0: Um, We're looking at Isaiah this semester, it's a huge book in the Bible and there's a lot of words and a lot of strange names and one of the ways that you can really get a lot out of it is by coming along to these events where we read and then teach and preach and explain and show its significance um, for us and hear how God is speaking to us through it. But a great companion to that would be your own personal reading or listening to it. So if you can find some recordings of Isaiah or just take some time to read it and become familiar with it then you'll get more out of this amazing book um, and then also more out of the, the reflection upon it that we'll do together in our um, Despair and Hope for Planet Earth series that we'll be doing this semester. Um, let's begin by thinking about despair and hope, shall we? Um, certainly at this time uh, in history, there's a lot, a lot of cause for despair and fear and worry. Is there anything to look forward to? Is there anything to hope for? There can be so many expressions of hopelessness and despair uh, in media, in music, in film, in just conversation as you chat with people and maybe they share with you their anxieties and their fears and their worries. So much uh, to be despairing of. Political conflict, economic downturn, environmental disaster, global pandemic and new strains and and then there's the conspiracy theories that you hear and you think are rubbish, but maybe they're not rubbish. And then you're worried about that, worried about being a conspiracy theorist and worry about them being right. <laughs> and, and, and there's these your own personal life. Bumped into a student the other day on the way to retake an exam. That's a worry, isn't it, Marx? Maybe you've got goals for where you want to go with your study. Will you be able to keep up with what's required to progress to the next phase of your study Talking with another student who's um, trying to, for their masters, uh, I think it's their masters, um, figure out artificial intelligence swarm technology for drones investigating Antarctica. That's all. <laughs> no big deal. Figure that out, please. By she has to write it up by the end of August. <laughs> you know, so, so and that's a worry, isn't it? Will I get it done? Will the will the research actually come good? Um. Some of you, serious health problems or mental health problems. May go on to face a stalled or unsatisfying career, fall into a financial hole, be lonely. Endless moral struggles. Just boredom can bring its own kind of strange despair. Trust the French to have a sexy word for it. They talk about ennui, (laughs) Uh, which is just boredom with a cool French skivvy and a cigarette. But it's... Um, but, but even just a sense of meaninglessness and aimlessness can bring its own kind of suffering and despair. Is there anything to hope for? And can that, any hope really sustain us day by day, year by year? When this book was originally written, this book of Isaiah, many, many years ago, not just back to the time of Jesus, around 2,000 years ago, but another 800 years before that, and nearly 3,000 years ago, there were many things to fear in that time. Isaiah covers a, a period of time, a long period of time, in chapter 1, verse 1. It speaks about how these are visions that uh, concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Across the reign of four kings, he spoke and prophesied. And he addresses the fears, the challenges, the threats... And and the attempted solutions of various kinds of the people way back then. And while he talks about that history, he also shares truths that we'll see are very timeless truths. They're relevant for you and I today, 2,800 years later. And so, Bible reading is this interesting exercise. It's history, and it's literature, and it's prophecy, and it's spirituality, and it's... Life for now, for our despairs and our hopes. They had great things to fear back then in the 8th century BC. You could read about it if you wanted for yourself in Isaiah 6, 7 and 8. We'll look at that in a a later week in our series. Um, The immediate threat they had um, is, is Isaiah is in this kingdom of Judah this uh, kingdom of Judah that has neighbouring countries, Israel and Aram, bullying them and pressuring them. And they're being bullied and pressured by these neighbouring countries because a great superpower empire, Assyria, is threatening all of them. <laughs> so the whole region is un- unstable and is threatened by a superpower, Assyria, under the emperor tiglath the III. This looming threat of this great expansionist empire, Assyria. Troubled times, desperate times... Scary times. And so as a history book, Isaiah tells the history of this fear of this people, this ancient people and their immediate neighbours and this great superpower. But underneath those kind of political threats, there's these underlying problems for the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel way back then in Isaiah's day. And, And those problems... Just like political concerns can be worries for us today, so also these deeper issues are very much real for us today as well. Not just the political threats, but moral problems, spiritual problems, the problems that cut us off from our creator and cause us that deep dislocation. So in Isaiah 6, verse 5, he has a vision of God, sees God in a clarity, and a glory, and he cries out, Isaiah himself cries out, Woe to me! I'm ruined! For I am a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, and now my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I'm ruined. I'm guilty, in other words. So that guilt, deep spiritual guilt here, my unworthiness before God, these deeper spiritual issues, they're true for us today too. And maybe you feel them, you have waves of them when you become really aware of, hey, I'm not okay with God. I've got guilt problems. I've got unclean problems. I've got, uh, I'm not right. And I'm not right with God. True in Isaiah's day, 2,800 years ago. True today. You see some of the descriptions of this this moral and spiritual uh, sickness in Isaiah's day. For example, in chapter 5. If you've got the Bible in front of you on your phone or on paper, you can just Google Isaiah, I-S-A-I-A-H. I I mean, that's up up behind us. I-S-A-I-A-H. And in chapter 5, Isaiah 5. Listen to some of the descriptions of the people he lives amongst. Isaiah, big number 5 small number seven the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the men of Judah they are the garden of his delight and he looked for justice and saw bloodshed God looked for righteousness but heard cries of distress well down in verse 11 of chapter 5 woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after drinks who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine I mean that could have been written about today couldn't it? verse 18, Isaiah 5, verse 18. Um, Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. Those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so that we may see it. Let it approach, let the man, the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter Morally, spiritually, compromised people, alienated from God, vulnerable to the judgment of God. 5 verse 25. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake. What hope is there? Way back in Isaiah's day, what hope is there in our day? When this massive book of Isaiah, it's kind of like a short novel length. It's a it's a it's a chunk of a book. There's a lot of stuff and it can be overwhelming if you try and read it. Maybe even just as it was read for us, this little section by Daniel, you kind of lost a bit in it all. It it's it's it, it goes on, it's repetitious, sometimes a bit confusing or strange, a lot of material. But as you get the hang of it, you'll notice repeated themes, motifs, Familiar things will come up again and again and they'll like, come on you like a wave coming on you again and again and you'll begin to notice some patterns and they'll stand out to you, become more familiar. It's a little bit like different music taste. I mean, hands up here who's a c- classical music fan. Now, if you're a classical music fan, you go, well, that's not a type of music, there's lots of different types. Do you mean Baroque or do you mean Roman. Whatever, but classical music, you, you played along, thank you. Hip-hop fans, any hip-hop fans here? Oh, less country music, country and western fans, yeah. Oh, less still. Um, uh, techno and dance music, yeah. A few R and B, Christian contemporary, Christian hymns, hymns fans. Don't be shy. Yeah, yeah. Hymns unaccompanied by music, psalms only. Yeah, a few as well. Yeah, great. Yeah. So there's different music types. If you're not familiar with a type of music. Like classical music, oh, classical music. What do you say? What do people say when they aren't familiar with the type of music? What's a common thing they say to express they don't like it? Say parents hear you listening to hip-hop and they don't like it. They say, it all sounds, it all sounds the same. It's all noise, it all sounds the same. And then you say, your classical music all sounds the same. Because if you're not familiar with something, it just all sounds the same. Jazz, all, sound- <laughs> all sounds the same. Um, but as you get familiar with it, you notice the differences, don't you? And you realise how, how silly that is. Oh no, let me tell you. yeah. Um, and so in the same way, at first you read the Bible, all sounds the same. There's this and begat and begot and begat and Israel and Judah and the Lord and glory and things. But as you get into it, you start, you start to notice the differences. And one of the things, as you read Isaiah, you begin to notice is in the midst of all this talk of judgment, there's salvation, there's rebuke, but then there's comfort, there's confrontation of evil doing, and there's invitation to righteousness. He sings and he stings, he wounds and he heals. And so all the way through Isaiah we see, so for example in chapter 1, which has many words of judgment and confrontation and rebuke, despair you could say, we get chapter 1 verse 18. Come now, says the Lord, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you'll eat the best from the land. Beautiful description. Or well, chapter two, verse one is very famous. This is what the Lord uh, that what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Israel and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief above the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll judge between the nations and settle disputes among the people. They'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. And now, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, which we're going to look at tonight, we see an arrival of this hope and this promise dawn in great clarity and great beauty. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 had said there'll be trouble coming, and you need to trust God through the trouble. God will save you through the trouble. And now, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, we have a beautiful picture of a hope dawning A beautiful, wonderful, worth the wait, hope. So let's now look at these chapters in some detail, 9, 10, 11. Let's look at first the negatives, the despair bit. (laughs) God will confront evil oppressors. It's judgment. It was was a comfort for the people of their day, we'll see, 2,800 years ago. And meaningful for us today, we'll see, we'll look at how God will confront evil oppressors, and then secondly, we'll see this major theme of hope and promise: the coming of the Christ. God overthrowing the evil oppressors, and the coming of the Christ, God's Savior. But you'll appreciate that promise of the Christ if you understand first this context of judgment, the overthrow of the evil oppressors. The Lord has told his people through Isaiah that things will go from bad to worse and from worse to -er worserer if that were a word. They need to hold on and trust the Lord in the middle of very troubled times and yet he promises the violent nations and the evil oppressors will not last forever. It's a tricky theme this one and maybe you felt it as Daniel read that second half of Isaiah 9. It's grim. It speaks of Uh, sieged peoples being driven to cannibalism. It's terrible descriptions. But it has to do with evil being overthrown, in part. The righting of wrongs, in part. And trusting God in the middle of it all. What God says through Isaiah is that evil, oppression, war, hatred, violence, corruption will not last forever. God's going to deal with that stuff. But God won't just deal with that stuff out there, the bad people out there. But actually, if God's going to deal with evil, that includes the evil in here too. Yeah? And so the first aspect in Isaiah 9 of evil that gets talked about is not evil out there, Assyria or uh, some other nation, but is the evil within God's own people. The judgment of evil oppressors within the northern kingdom of Israel, particularly, he talks about here. Now, don't worry too much about this if you're not great with the Bible, but if you know a little bit about it, this might be a helpful reminder. You know how there's the story of Israel out of Egypt with Moses, and then they have King David as their king, and a glorious kingdom, David and Solomon, around 1000 BC. And, but then soon after, Solomon it splits in two. Maybe you'll remember this kind of story. And so there becomes a northern kingdom, Israel, sometimes called Ephraim or Samaria, And then a southern kingdom, sometimes called Judah. And so it splits in two. And we're at that kind of time. And so this is particularly to that northern kingdom, Israel, Ephraim, Samaria. And this northern kingdom, remember, was putting pressure on the Jews to join a coalition of local nations to guard against the superpower. But the Lord says to this northern kingdom, God's got his eye on you and your failings too. Chapter 9, verse 8. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It'll fall on Israel. All the people will know it. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stones. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. But the Lord has strengthened resins' foes against them and has spurred their enemies on. Arameans from the east and Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with an open mouth. Beware, even those who are one of the nations of God's people. Beware. You haven't trusted the Lord. You haven't turned to the Lord, verse 13. The people haven't returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. In fact, within their nation, they have been immoral and oppressive, just like anyone else. So verse 17 The Lord will take no pleasure in the young man, nor will he pity the fatherless and the widows, for everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks vileness. Or 10, verse 1. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. And at this time, All those years ago, God says, I'm going to confront within you your oppression, your cruelty, your lack of concern for the poor, your lack of trust in God. In part, I will confront this problem and show judgment in history through your fate as a nation. I'll confront these problems through your fate and welfare as a nation. And so 9 verse 14, So... 9.14, the Lord will cut off from Israel, both head and tail, both palm branch and reed in a single day. The elders and prominent men of the head, the prophets who teach lies of the tail. those who guide this people mislead them, and those who are guided are led astray. Therefore, the Lord will take no pleasure. Judgment will come. Or ten verse three, what will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? Now, at this time, what Isaiah is talking about is like a partial judgment, a temporal judgment, a at-the-time-in-your-welfare-as-a-nation, as a, a political judgment. It's just a, a symbolic token of the final judgment of God. This happens a bit in the Bible. Sometimes God miraculously acts in, in, in a full act of judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah, perhaps, or the, the flood in the time of Noah. Very occasionally, God instructs people to be his means of judgment. Very occasionally, but in the time of Joshua, we see that. Most often, we get what we see here in the Old Testament. There is the welfare of the nation will go up and down according to their closeness with God and his ways. And if they turn from God and his ways, their welfare will come under threat. God will give a temporal judgment in this way. And to get your head around that chapter 10 is super helpful chapter 10 is really helpful because it turns from israel to the one who will bring judgment on israel that superpower we talked about assyria Tiglath-Pileser the third and assyria and as we look at them and how god will use them to bring judgment it's, it's quite interesting let's have a look at it together Assyria will be used by God to bring punishment on these other nations. Verse 5. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I, God says, send Assyria against a godless nation. That's Israel. I dispatch him against a people who anger me. Israel, the northern kingdom. To seize and loot and snatch and plunder, to trample them down like mud in the streets. So God is using this nation in time to bring this partial correction, judgment upon Israel. However, while God is using Assyria for this partial purpose, that doesn't mean Assyria is deliberately going, okay, God, what do you want me to do? Cool, all right, got it. How do you want me to do it? Just like that. Okay, I'll be careful. Thank you. Got it. No, no, no. Take a look at 10 verse Uh, 6. Sorry, 10 verse 7. But this is not what Assyria intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. Ah, not my commanders, kings, he says. Has not no fair like Harkim? She just goes on bragging, basically, at this point. Um, and it, it, it lists a serious boast. It's about me, the empire, our mighty nation, our rule, our dominance. We're not cooperating with God. God is using us in spite of us. It's a bit like the Easter story, isn't it? Judas was used by God. The Roman rulers were used by God. The Jewish rulers were used by God to bring about the salvation of the world through the death of Jesus. But they weren't consciously doing it, were they? They weren't going, yep, yeah, cool, okay, so what do we need to do? They had different motives in mind. You see that? How God can work in and through and in spite of human intentions. And ultimately, God will put Assyria in its place. 10 verse 15. 10 verse 15. Does the axe raise itself above him who swings it? Assyria is the axe here. God is the the axe, the the lumberjack. Um, Or the saw boast against him who uses it? As if a rod were to wield him who lifts it up, (laughs) or a club brandish him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord Almighty will send a wasting disease upon these sturdy warriors under, under his pomp, a fire will be kindled like a blazing flame. Or verse 24. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says O my people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians who beat you with a rod and lift up a club against you as Egypt did. Very soon my anger against you will end and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. After this time, the Assyrians threatened the southern kingdom Judah a whole lot of times and tried to get at them a whole lot of times. Most famously, we get, hear the story later on in Isaiah. We'll get to that at the end of semester, Isaiah 36 and 37. We get this great story that we have recorded both from the Jewish point of view and the Assyrian point of view. It's quite interesting. In our historical record, we have access to both accounts, which is quite cool. Um, And they got right to the gates, mocking and laughing at at Jerusalem. Right to the gates. And yet their siege failed. A a disease threw them into panic and chaos. Military threats elsewhere in the empire led them off. And they never succeeded in breaching the gates of Jerusalem. God is in control. And about 100 years after this time, in the late 7th century... Under the pressure of various powers, Persia, Media, Babylon, Assyria was no more. So this first section, this dark section we've been looking at, God brings judgment, his justice, partial in, this, in life, in time, on the northern kingdom of Israel for their oppression and faithlessness. And that judgment comes through Assyria, whom God uses. But then God promises he will judge Assyria, for they are an oppressive empire too. And what about us in our day? God is the judge of the cruel, oppressive nations of the world in our day. The violent, the warmongering, the ones careless for the poor and ignorant of God. God will bring justice on the rich, civilised nations of the world in their evil on the other violent and oppressive nations of the world. But hey, what about us? We all have to stand before God. We all are guilty before God. In our little lives, and as a part of our nations and our peoples, and our families, we have guilt. We've done wrong. What do you do with that? What do you do with your wrong? What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your nation and your people and your family's history? When I stand before my creator, what then? We live in a day where the heroes of the past are exposed for their sins and their blind spots, the ways they were complicit with the the sins of their age and their culture and their day, don't we? We see that with history of the past, seeing the dark side. We see it in in the history of present figures and their scandals, publicly shamed, exposed. It's a good reminder, isn't it? There's no pure good guys. What do we do with that? It's a big thought. It's comforting to know God will right wrongs and bring down oppressors. That's wonderful comfort. And it's deeply troubling at the same time, isn't it? But this is not just about judgment and downfall. The first little glimmers of hope we see. Check out, say, um, 10, verse 29. 10, verse 29. I'm uh, going sure I've got the, the quote right here. Uh, no, not 29, 22 to 23. Though your people, O Israel, 10 verse 22, though your people, O Israel, be like the sand by the sea, only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed overwhelmingly the righteous. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, will carry out destruction. That is decreed on the whole land. But a little earlier, verse 20, in that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down but they'll truly rely on the Lord the Holy One of Israel a remnant will return a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God God will save a remnant he'll preserve and comfort and rescue more than that as we'll see he has a plan of rescue forgiveness return for the world Before we come back to that promise of the Christ, let me just pause and talk about this judgment in history stuff for a second. Can I do that just briefly? Because it's a thing that Christians have a go at doing, talking about God's judgment in history and often get really wrong. So let me just give a couple of comments on that and then we'll move on to the the happy part of the sermon as we come to a close. So um, I think I've got five points quickly just to touch on, to think about does God bring judgment in history? Can you read the news and, and you know, you get out your phone, you flip through the news and go, ha, huh, judgment of God sucked in. Uh, okay, cool, doing well. You know, stocks, prices are up. That's the blessing of God. Uh, okay, armies, yet yeah, that judgment of God, you know. Is that how it works? Well, the first thing I want to say is this is a prophet of God. That's what Christians believe. Here is God speaking through a prophet, Isaiah, describing what's going on. We don't usually have that. We don't usually have access to that same prophetic insight god does not always give us the director's commentary so gotta be careful when you're a preacher when you're christian when you're a christian celebrity sportsman or whoever it is presumes to tell you what is and isn't the judgment of god be careful second point the whole world actually you could say is experiencing the consequences of the judgment of god kind of all the time So in a sense, whenever we experience um, uh, climate disasters as a result of a reckless attention to God's environment or um, the downfall of nations through their folly and their foolish leaders or um, uh, economic bubbles bursting through greedy bankers and and also greedy, ambitious uh, first and second and third home owners, um, whenever we see... Uh, the, the perils caused by addictions of various kinds, and the breakup caused by unfaithfulness and immorality of various kinds, we're seeing the judgment of God working its way out all around us. We're in the world that is what the Bible calls fallen, that sits under the general curse of God on it. So there is a sense actually in which you can flip through the news and when you see the negative effects of turning from God and living without God, we can go, yep, yep, that's what happens. Third, God can use, like we see here, temporal judgments for his specific purposes. God can use a war or a plague or a pandemic or, or any number of things as a, a natural disaster as a way of communicating his correction, his rebuke, his judgment. The downfall of an arrogant, oppressive regime or empire could be the judgment of God. A sickness or a natural disaster or a plague could be the judgment of God. It's not something that uh, God always does, but clearly here we see that it is one of the ways in which God has worked. Because, you see, what happens is there are some over here who might say, "Up, oh, judgment of God. <laughs> and it's always judgment for God for whatever particular issue they're worked up about. So if it's the preacher who's really worked up about pornography, it's the judgment of God for pornography. Whereas if they're more interested in concerns about right for life for the unborn, which is an important concern, issues of abortion and... and and unborn human life it's always the judgment of God for abortion and then if it's another issue if you're more a bit more left-leaning then it's the judgment of God for not having more equitable um, sharing of the wealth and you know how it's always that it's always I can tell it's the judgment of God and it's the judgment of God for my particular you know um, issue Um, but some of you are over here you see that and you go oh come on how do you know that that's not right there you go again And you can be tempted to say, as sometimes people do, God doesn't use those things to bring his judgment. Well, that's overcorrecting, because God can use those things. There was an article around the time of the bushfires last year um, where the Centre for Public Christianity published an article which just said God doesn't do that. God doesn't use natural disasters for his judgment. And I think they were overcorrecting by saying that. God can do it. God might be doing it. But again, remember, we can't be sure if we don't have Isaiah's prophetic insight. Fourth thing, just very quickly, even if God did use a natural disaster or a war or something as his judgment, or even the consequences of addiction as a judgment, even if God did, at the same time, it's still really sad and really tragic. Read the book of Lamentations that is a personal description of the anguish and grief and trouble caused by people under the judgment of God. It's still yuck. And as we see here in Isaiah 10, the people involved are still, all of them, responsible. It's not like it lets Assyria off the hook. God made me do it, yeah? Yeah. And so the best way to approach this, when we don't have all the answers, we don't have the God's eye view, the way Isaiah was enabled to have, is prayerful reflection, cautious, prayerful reflection. I can ask the question, can't I? If things go bad in the world or in my life, I can ask the question, what might God be teaching me here? Could this be a lesson, a challenge, a judgement? Certainly that kind of prayerful reflection about even these issues. Equitable sharing of wealth in the first world. Care for the life of the unborn. Or what was the other one we talked about over here? Pornography. All of these are issues worthy of concern. My greed, my pride, my prayerlessness. These are all things to search my heart over. As the famous quote goes from C.S. Lewis, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience but shouts in our pains. Our suffering is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So there's this despair of the judgment of God coming, or the the dark, good thing of God bringing judgment, which is fearful and troubling, but comforting in a way too. God bringing down violent oppressors at home and abroad. But secondly, in the happy side of the sermon, as we come towards a close, the rise of the Messiah or, or the Christ, same word, Hebrew or Greek, or the, the Saviour King. Words of judgment, uh, book ended, either side, chapter 9 and chapter 11, with promises of the end time King, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Saviour, hope, rescue, God's plan to make things good again and better a great emperor, you could say, to come, who is nothing like the the small kings and lords or the great superpower emperors of this world. Nothing like that. Nothing like the presidents and revolutionaries and reformers of our day. Back in Isaiah's day, he was told in chapter 7 that a virgin will give birth to a child and be called Emmanuel. Well, Isaiah says, an even greater child will be born An even more glorious child will come. Chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. This is a really special part of the Bible, really high point. This is a highlighter part of the Bible. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom, (laughs) no more despair, no more judgment for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light as dawn. The very land where Assyria will first come and cause trouble for God's people will now be the place where dawn will come and rise. You've enlarged the nation, verse 3, and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Let's jump down to verse 6. For to us... A child is born and a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and listen to this glorious one. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace and the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end and he'll reign on King David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Glorious King, the eternal King, bringing peace, justice, goodness, permanence, Blessing, joy, joy, joy. Pick that up. Rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing. Relief, rescue. No more judgment. No more suffering. No more death. No more evil. There is a hope greater than just surviving. There's a hope greater than just getting through your degree, getting a good job, getting a secure kind of financial portfolio, getting a happy little life. There's a hope greater. There's a hope greater than even the great things of diplomatic stability and economic stability and environmental sustainability. Even than those great things, there's a hope greater. There's more to hope for. There is a sure hope. And a Christian reads this promise from 800 years before Jesus' birth and says, huh, that's Jesus. Promised, prophesied, predicted, seen in advance by Isaiah, written down hundreds of years before. The child will be born. God will come and rule in the line of David. And so at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we read about how Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, as Isaiah prophesied, Galilee of the Gentiles, the dawning light to bring the kingdom of God. Repent and believe the good news, he said, the kingdom of God is here and at the end of this section his reign and its blessing is described so you got that bit chapter 9 verses 1 to 7 then all the stuff we looked at at the very end chapter 11 we come back to this same theme chapter 11 verse 1 a shoot will come up from the stump of jesse from the roots a branch will bring fruit The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he'll delight in the fear of the Lord. He'll not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he'll judge the needy. With justice he'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he'll slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. Sounds like all the Bosveld's pets, doesn't it? Um, And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw with the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. The young child put his hand in the viper's nest. Neither will they harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. The Spirit-empowered Son of God. Notice the Spirit isn't separate from the work of Jesus. The Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit all work together. Where do you see the Spirit at work in power and wisdom? In the reign of Jesus, in his salvation and his blessing. Just, fair, wise, godly. Beautiful description of Jesus' great rule. We sit under it now as we come and believe and trust in him. Receive his wisdom, receive his righteousness, receive his love, his comfort enter his kingdom now as we bow the knee before him and have this hope of a transformed creation that's what the, these descriptions of the animal kingdom is trying to capture is peace being restored to the whole world that's why we called the series Hope and Despair for Planet Earth it's not just hope and despair for you in your heart, it is that but it's hope and despair for the whole world, God's commitment to his creation will be fulfilled in his renewal of all things as the the blessings of the gospel of Jesus come to forgive my sins, give me new life, give me a hope for this life and then he comes again to restore all things in his new creation and restore people from all across the world, verse ten. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as the banner of the peoples, and the nations will rally to him. And the people will rest will be, um, and the places of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out His hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is in the left of His people in Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He'll raise the banner from the nations and gather the exiles and assemble the scattered peoples of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. And then he'll invite all the nations in chapter 12 to praise him to rejoice in him to delight in his salvation all the nations of the world come sing rejoice delight make known chapter 12 verse 4 among the nations what he has done and proclaim that his name is exalted so the whole section that talks of such grim realities as oppression and violence and war and the judgment of God, as it speaks of the promised coming of Jesus and all that he will do and his life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, ends with an invitation to sing. It's one cool way to think about Christian life, the singing life, and a cool way to think about an invitation to become a Christian, an invitation to come join the song. An invitation to sing. All the nations, hear what God has done in Jesus. What he's going to do in Jesus. Come sing with us. Come praise him, delight in him. It's not about what you have to do in order to get to heaven by being good enough. When, my, um, uh, when I was at uni, my brother was at the con and he did um, Little River. It was one of the musicals they did back then, the Huckleberry Finn musical. And there's a song in the bit where Huck has to wear the uncomfortable Sunday clothes for church. And they sing. Do you know the Huck the Rig River musical? I can't remember it exactly, but anyway, there's a song that the religious Puritans sing when they have Huckleberry Finn trying to make him a good Christian. And they say, listen here, but Huck, you've got to read your Bible. You've got to read your Bible. You've got to start right now because if you don't read your Bible, you won't get to heaven. You won't get to heaven because you won't know how. <laughs> That's not what it's about, just learning to read. You've got to learn to read so you can read your Bible and then you can get to heaven because you'll know how by just... It's like it paints this picture of put on a shirt, put on your shoes, go to church, learn to read, read your Bible, then you go to heaven. (laughs) You could read it a different way, couldn't you, to say, Come and read of the message of God's salvation and come and rejoice, but you see it's not about just doing the root It's about no, come read, hear, listen, rejoice with us. It's done for you by God in Jesus. It's offered to you by God in Jesus. All you gotta do is joyfully accept and joyfully sing. Which we're going to do now. Do we have another one of the virtual choirs lined up, guys? Thank you. Why don't you guys stand and we'll sing together. And please mute my microphone because we don't need (laughs) to hear me any louder than anyone else.